I find that those who have a love of theater seem to have a similar backstory. Typically, someone important in their life introduced them to it. For me, it was my mother. My mom made sure that when we went to New York in the spring of 1988, we saw a Broadway show. We had a choice between Cats and a chorus line. My sister and I ambivalently chose Cats. But could you imagine me, a nine-year-old, seeing a musical with the lyrics tits and ass with my parents? That would have been a New York experience. But that evening at the Winter Garden changed my life. The joy and wonder that overcame me, I still think about multiple times a day. It's that important to me. So each year we do our summer theater trip to Toronto. The summer of 1995, my mother took the big hints I was dropping by blasting the American premiere cast recording in my bedroom, and we saw Sunset. As I mentioned in episode one, she kept it a secret that we had front row center seats until we got to the theater. And again, that performance is seared in my brain for eternity. For this episode, I want to turn to the scene of the crime, the place where sunset shined its blazing spotlight into my heart. The Canadian world premiere. I'm Broadway Bob, and this is The Sunset Project. Episode 9. Toronto. Shopping. They come for the weekend and stay for a week. Johnny went to visit Toronto. Now he wants us to sublet his apartment. So if you can't get Toronto off your mind... Hello, Toronto. Can I come see you, please? Call 1-800-387-2999. Couldn't you use a little Toronto right now? Now, for those of you who aren't aware, you have to understand that Toronto in the 1990s was a major theatrical town. And yes, I know it still has a thriving art scene currently, but back then it was off the hook. First class, resident productions of major musicals dotted the theater strip. Miss Saigon, Crazy for You, Beauty and the Beast, The Who's Tommy, Showboat, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Ragtime, and the show that started it all, Phantom. If you lived in Michigan in the 1990s and were in band or choir, chances are you took a trip across the bridge to see the Phantom of the Opera at the gloriously restored Pantages Theater. It was the ticket. I saw it three times, the first time with Colm Wilkinson and Rebecca Kane, who played father and daughter in the original London Les Mis. Talk about daddy issues. The man behind this Toronto theatrical boom was mega-producer Garth Drabinsky, under his production company, Live Ent. He had a big love of theater and theater creators, and even a bigger budget to showcase his efforts. Problem is, much of that money was fraudulent and he went to prison for it. But that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) 
When his hit 1994 revival of Showboat, with a cast of over 70 performers, moved from Toronto to Broadway, Garth was looking for a tenant for his recently refurbished Ford Center for the Performing Arts in the northern suburbs of Toronto. He had been eyeing the success of Sunset across Lake Ontario. So he bought the rights from Rugg and the sets from the suddenly shuttered L.A. production. But they needed a star. And, as it seems is the case with this show, that's where the issues formed. Garth, as the lead producer of this Canadian premiere, had a pretty firm idea of who he wanted as Norma. But Andrew had other ideas. I had to save my love, save it for you. Mm, I never, never gave my love to you. The word icon is tossed around all the time. But Diane Carroll was truly an icon. She broke barriers. She had style. She had presence. She had a career spanning nearly 70 years. Her passing in October of 2019 was a huge loss. While she's cited for having her breakout role in the television series Julia in 1968, in which she was the first black actress to star in her own show, she had a celebrated stage history before that. Born Carol Diane Johnson, at 16, a friend reversed her name, dubbing her Diane Carol, for a first prize appearance on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. And now, here's that man himself, Arthur Godfrey. Backstage, she did her own makeup because the staff artist had never worked on black skin before. She earned the eyes of talent scouts by winning $1,000 on a televised talent competition called Chance of a Lifetime. She sang Why Was I Born by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein. She won the following four weeks after that. She was 18 years old. At 20, she then went on to earn her first Tony nomination in 1954 for House of Flowers, a musical with music and lyrics by Harold Arlen, who wrote most of Judy Garland's big hits, and the book by Truman Capote. Yes, that Truman Capote. Yeah, well, that'd be very good. It'll come in very handy for her. Diane Carroll is, is stopping the House of Flowers every night when she takes over the stage. It's, it's really electric. It's magic when she sings Harold Arlen's wonderful music, like this tender legend of the sleeping bee. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Diane Carroll. <laughs> In 1962, she starred in the Richard Rogers musical, No Strings. In that, she played a fashion model named Barbara, who lives in Paris. She meets an author named David with writer's block. Through her love of life and exuberant nature, she provides the inspiration for him to get unstuck. But when David makes the decision he needs to return to Maine to write, they realize their love cannot continue, and he returns to the States no strings attached. 
Let the little folk who need the help depend upon vows and such. We are much too tall. No ties, no ties, except our own emotion. While this wasn't a direct commentary on social issues at the time, it really, in many ways, was. While the show itself makes no overt commentary about race, the casting of Diane with Richard Kiley, who was white, was a progressive choice. And the fact that their love could not continue in the States carried weight for those who were paying attention. It was also Richard Rogers' first time writing both the music and the lyrics for a show, following the death of his longtime collaborator, Oscar Hammerstein. Diane would go on to win a Best Actress and a Musical Tony for her work. The first for a black woman. I wanted this. I'm like Abe Burroughs. I really wanted this. If you think I'm not going to talk about Richard Rogers, you're crazy. I've wanted to be on Broadway for seven and a half years. And he put me there. Following her breakout career on Broadway, Diane transitioned to the silver screen. While she'd done smaller parts in movies before, her role in the film Claudine with James Earl Jones in 1974 would earn her an Academy Award nomination, demonstrating Diane's versatility and power as a performer. Diane then moved to television, where she amassed over 60 credits in her lifetime. Most notably, her role as the formidable Dominique Devereaux in Dynasty. Look, Miss Devereaux, whatever it is that you're doing in Denver, I suggest that you tread very carefully with me. Let me ask you, Mrs. Colby, is that supposed to be an implied threat of some sort? Because if it is, I am just as tough as you. Maybe tougher. Who the hell are you anyway? Who am I? You will find out very soon. Very soon. Yes, Diane understood what it meant to be grand and proud. In real life, she drove a Rolls-Royce, a clear symbol of her success as a black woman and a profession that had given her so many hurdles. She considered carefully how she presented herself, embracing her role as a star while never taking it for granted. She understood her status as an actress and the opportunities for a woman past 40 in Hollywood, especially a black woman. When the opportunity for Sunset Boulevard presented itself in 1984, Diane was 60 years old. Still a stunner, she knew opportunities like this were few and far between. She needed to prepare. She valued the role and the rareness of it, knowing very well the demands that eight nights a week presented. While it had been over 30 years since she was on Broadway, she knew she had it in her. She did all she could to make sure the creative team was happy in her audition. In her autobiography, 
the legs are the last to go, Diane devotes an entire chapter to her sunset experience. Her writing is thoughtful and insightful, weaving in and out of the history of stage performing, and her challenges in navigating overt and subvert racism. I bring this up because racism is very much a forefront of her experience in this show, particularly her audition. She describes the day of the audition. She changed her clothes multiple times like a nervous schoolgirl, settling on a white pantsuit, white coat, and white fedora. She drove herself in her roles. She got there early to practice with her assigned pianist. She was promised, contractually, she'd have 40 minutes to rehearse her song with this pianist prior to presenting her work to Andrew. But just as she started warming up, in burst Andrew. As Diane relays it, Andrew sat himself down at the keyboard and said, Let's hear what you got. Sing something. This was not what she was promised. He persisted. He asked her to sing a song she didn't know, a saloon song called Melancholy Baby. She declined, insisting that she sing the song she'd prepared, as if we never said goodbye. Andrew said, Okay, and started playing the song in the wrong key, a higher key. She corrected him, stating that this was not in the agreed key she was to present, and he persisted. Well, let's see what you can do. Diane felt unmoored. This was going downhill fast. But she stood her ground. She knew what she was owed, a contracted 40 minutes of preparation time with her pianist in her agreed-on key. That was being denied. Now, Diane understood prior to this audition that Andrew was not really keen on having her play the role. Now, from what I've heard, Andrew very much wanted Betty Buckley for the Toronto production. Garth Drabinsky, the producer of the Canadian production, wanted Diane. And Andrew's power move in that audition room was very clear. He was sabotaging her. Diane, who had been in this business for a very long time, stood her ground. Now, in her book, she mentions her immense respect for composers, having worked with the likes of Richard Rogers and Harold Arlen, composers who willingly collaborated with her. And she respected Andrew. She wanted to do him proud, but she had more respect for herself. She walked out of that audition room and back to her Rolls Royce and drove herself home, knowing that she blew it. But she also knew that she did what she needed to do. She left on her own terms, which is incredibly powerful to do as a black woman in this industry. Where am I going? What will I find? What's in this grab bag? Now, Diane looks back on all of this, quickly pointing out that what happened that day wasn't overt racism. She'd experienced overt racism when, in her 20s, a band leader said out loud so that she and the band could hear it that he did not want to perform with a, well, you can fill in the rest. Or when a cab driver noticed that she was black and drove off while she was still holding the door, dragging her alongside it. This was something else. She understood casting was a taste business, but she also got the sense that she wasn't being given a fair shot. She also mentioned in her book that during her audition, Andrew offhandedly mentioned that there were no black silent film stars. And Diane replied back, well, there was also no Norma Desmond. Thankfully, for all the faults Garth Drabinsky has, he pushed for her in the part, against Andrew's wishes, and she got another audition without Andrew in the room, and she landed the part. In a recent documentary about Garth Drabinsky, Diane very plainly speaks about the risk Garth took in casting her in this role. He, he knew that I wanted it more than I wanted to have ice cream. And I think he said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to break the color barrier. 
and I'm going to say that this is the woman that I want to play, Norma Desmond. How can I ever forget that? It's very touching even now that he decided to say, uh, I know this is right. I know this is going to give me a hell of a hard time. I know that Andrew Lloyd is going to give me a very difficult time. I know everyone's going to give me a hard time, but I want to do it. In the lead-up of her debut as Norma in October 1995, Diane talked about the intersection between her life and Norma's in a December 1994 interview in the Buffalo News. She says, My Norma Desmond is more closely aligned with what I've lived out over the years. She believes she's in love with this young man and that the love affair is fine. He's 15 years younger. And then Diane talks about how in her 40s, she was charmed by a handsome 24-year-old journalist, Robert DeLeon, whom she married after only a few months. As far as he was concerned, our marriage was a trade-off, a simple matter of give and take. He would give me a young, attractive husband. I would give him my name and contacts. Diane's husband tragically died by careening off the mountainous Mulholland Drive at midnight in the late 1970s. He lost control of his Ferrari, and it drove over a cliff, plummeting 150 feet before smashing onto rocks. Following her husband's death, Diane says, Bills flew in from everywhere. He had borrowed a great deal of money without my knowledge, and I was determined to try to repay his creditors. So, Diane got to work, and she worked consistently up until her final days. Her taking on a role like Norma at 60, the oldest actress to play the part at that point, was proof of her work ethic. I'm coming out of makeup. The light's already burning. Until the cameras will start turning And the early morning madness And the magic in the making Yes, everything's as it is A distinct memory I have sitting front row center was watching her reach the apex of As If We Never Said Goodbye. She literally spat on me as she sang. This world's waited long enough I also noticed her knees. Under her black tights were what appeared to be ace bandage wraps. Certainly going up and down literally 4,000 stairs each week had taken a toll, but I never would have noticed if I wasn't that close. She commanded that stage, giving a performance that was proud, bold, and heartbreaking. In her book, Diane calls out one particular night when Andrew was to see the show. He had been mostly hands-off on this production, 
and the cast was thrilled and excited to get a chance to get his feedback and reactions for all the hard work they put into it. As they eagerly waited backstage for him following the performance, the intercom announced that Andrew had a flight to catch, and they did a fine job. That's right. The composer of the show she was leading essentially dismissed her and her cast for a flight. Reviews for her Norma were a bright spot. Michael Kukwara of the AP said, Diane's voice has retained its power, but there is a catch in it now that is altogether heartbreaking. Every movement is deliberately extravagant. End quote. Now the press coverage of this production, at least what exists of it online, is shockingly slim. From what I can tell, it was largely ignored by the American press. I found some old internet posts reviewing the show, and more than a few commenters mentioned how great she was despite being wrong for the role. By wrong, I'm assuming not white. There were rumors that she played the role on Broadway at some point, but that didn't happen. After a year in Toronto, Diane would take her Norma to Vancouver. She played the role for over two years and then bid adieu to Boulevard. I really wish you all could have seen her in the role. Despite what some creators may have thought about it, her Norma was legendary. And thankfully, a beautiful cast recording exists capturing her performance. Meanwhile, a first national tour was getting ready to set out across America. It was the largest, most expensive tour for a show in the history of modern theater. What it didn't have was a star. Would this mammoth tour manage to make a mark? Or would it encounter a flat tire on the road? Coming up on The Sunset Project. <laughs> 